So this morning, as you see, we're continuing in the book of Philippians. But as we just heard in the scripture reading, and as I just said, this morning we will only be covering mainly verse 9 here. And if you remember, if you were here last week, we covered verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3, including verse 9 a little bit. But the reason that we're going back to look at this verse is because I really want us as a church and individuals to understand and to hopefully really love what the Bible's saying here. And we do this especially because, although it may not look like it at first, what's said here in verse 9 is truly the very essence of Christianity, of our gospel, of the good news. And at first, we may not see that, especially because there's that big religious word righteousness in there a couple times. And, and let's be honest, when we encounter big words or ideas like that, whether in the Bible or in other literature, we tend to want to just skip past it. But what I want us to see this morning is that although, yes, the wording here may sound a little bit confusing at first, yet when we understand what's actually being said here, we'll see that this idea is the center of our Christian faith. It is our gospel. And so that's our goal this morning, to really understand and hopefully love what's said in verse 9 here about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, I hope this morning will help each and every one of us be able to more clearly answer the question that we should have a good answer to, and that's the question, what is the gospel? Which brings us to our outline. So we'll split up our time this morning by asking three questions, three questions. The first two will be a sort of background to the gospel, while the third question will be really our focus. And the three questions will be first, what does righteousness mean? Then from there, second, we'll ask, and how have people usually tried to get this righteousness? And then third, and our biggest question will be, and what does Jesus have to do with all this? So in some first, what does righteousness mean? Second, how have people usually tried to get this righteousness? And third, what does Jesus Christ have to do with all of that? And in these questions, whether you're a seasoned Christian or a newer believer, or you're here and you're just a seeker, again, our goal this morning is that all of us will understand and hopefully love this gospel more, perhaps in a way we haven't before. So let's begin with our first question. What does righteousness mean? And we ask this because if it's true, after reading Philippians 3.9, that this verse contains the essence of the Christian gospel, of Christianity itself, then we have to get this idea of righteousness correct. Because as you can see, this is the central idea in the verse. But see it for yourself again. We're going to read verse 9 once again. So look down to your Bibles, Philippians 3.9. And be found in him... Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you can see it. The idea of righteousness shows up multiple times here. So what does it mean? Well, to answer this, we have to begin by going all the way back to God himself and especially to who God revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. And when we do this, we of course know, you might know, that God first of all revealed himself to be the creator in the Old Testament. 
And then along with this, he revealed himself to be things like all-powerful and gracious and wise and loving in the Old Testament. But I bring all that up because concerning the idea of righteousness specifically, one of the ways God also revealed himself to be in the Old Testament was that he is a God of law. A God of law. We see this throughout the Old Testament. I'm sure you have. For example, God saves his people Israel in the story, and then what's the first thing he gives them? His law. Or using other examples, think of the psalmists, our songbook, and they love the Lord. And what is one of the main things they love about their God? They love his law. And so maybe you've noticed that about the Old Testament, but you don't really know what to make about it. And especially for us modern Christians who mainly think of the law as only obedience and the wrong way of getting right with God, which as a side note was really not how the Old Testament viewed the law, but more how the Pharisees in Jesus' day viewed the law. But to us then, the law is often thought to just be bad. It's a negative idea for us. But when you read the Old Testament... And then even the New Testament, you know that the law actually isn't bad. As long as we don't think that it's our way of being right with God, which we'll talk about. Instead, in fact, Paul himself will even say in Romans 7 that the law is holy and righteous and good. And so God being a God of law is actually a really good thing. But then we need to ask, what does that even mean? Because if we think, as we probably do, that God being a God of law means he just likes to tell people what to do, then we'll miss it. So the question is, what about God makes him a God of law? And here's what we'll have to do a lot with righteousness. The answer to why God is a God of law is because who God is in himself is a God who is lawful, meaning there's a right and good and beautiful way that things are supposed to be, and God himself is that way, and he always acts in accordance with that way. Now, now I know that's a lot, so I'll say it one more time so we get it. Again, God being a God of law, if you're tracking, means... There's a good and right and beautiful way that things are supposed to be in this world, a law. And God himself is that way. He's the origin of that law. It's in his nature. And therefore, he always acts in that way. And that then is why God is a God of law. And this is why God is said to be righteous or to have righteousness because he always acts in accordance with what's right and good and beautiful because that's his character. And this also is why he gives his people law, not to earn a relationship with him, but because he's telling them what's right and good and beautiful and how to live. Because remember, God did create all this and design everything. And so he knows what's best, and what's best and right we can call law. The right way that things are supposed to be. And again, it's rooted in the very nature of who God is. Now again, I know that's all a lot, but I hope we're on the same page here. Because this is important not only to the gospel, but it's important, as we all know, to how our universe works. Because we live in a universe, we all know this, where there is right and wrong where there is good and bad. 
And as a side note on this, but I think this will be helpful, this was also one of the main reasons why the God of Israel was so different than all the other gods of the surrounding nations. And it's why still today the God that we worship in our Bible is so different than other gods even that people worship today because God being a God of law has always meant that he's not capricious. And this is important because by him not being capricious, I mean that in the Bible, God technically can't just do whatever without regard to what's right, good, and beautiful without regard to his character. And we as Bible believers take that for granted. But for all the other gods of the nation surrounding Israel, those gods usually were capricious. Meaning, sure, they might have mercy on the people and they might make promises, but in the end, the gods could literally do whatever. They could promise to be merciful and then they could not be merciful. They could judge according to this standard and then they could judge according to a different standard. And why? Because they argued that their gods could literally do whatever. And concerning our world today, just so we know, the same is true for Allah for Muslims. Muslims in their theology hold that Allah is capricious. Meaning he can literally do whatever, no matter what. But here's again why what God has told us in the Bible about himself for thousands of years was and is still so profound. And it's the background of what we're talking about here this morning. The God of Israel, brothers and sisters, our God, the true God, is not capricious. In one sense, yes, we can say that he can do whatever he wants, but the Bible is also clear that he'll never want to act outside his nature. Meaning he will always do what's right, good, and beautiful. He'll judge rightly. He will always keep his promises. And why? Because he's a God of law. Because he's righteous, always aligning with what's right. And to be clear, this isn't because there's something called law or right that stands above God. Instead, it's because our God is a consistent God. Always doing what's right, good, and beautiful according to his nature. And so that's what we mean by saying God's a God of law. But we spent some time on that. I know it's a lot because now, though, we can understand more what this big word righteousness means. Because righteousness technically is a law word. It's technically a law word. It means being judged as right according to this law. And specifically, it's when God, the God of law, judges someone as right in accordance with his character, the law of the universe, which is what's right. And so now, when we think of it this way, we start to understand, okay, so there's, and we all know this, there's this law, meaning in the universe, rooted in God's nature, there's this way that things are supposed to be. And so when it comes to me, I can either be right in line with all of that, or not right, not in line with all of that. And when we think like that, as the Bible does, we see on our own, we know we are not right. We all feel that. And we won't spend much time on it, but we should see then that in basic, when we're talking about things, 
in church or in the Bible like sin or missing the mark or being unrighteous. We're talking about something in us and things that we do that are not right, that are not in line with the right, good, and beautiful way that things are supposed to be in this universe, all rooted in God's very nature. So that's the background of this idea of righteousness. But one more thing on this, and it'll lead us to our second point. So if you're tracking, when we hear all that, all of us should feel, of course, then, I'm not right. And that's true. That's the New Testament emphasis in the gospel. We are not right. But yet, and this is a really big deal, yet, what's amazing is that even in the Old Testament, and then, of course, in the New Testament, what's amazing is while all that's true, that we're not right, we're not, Yet we see that this God of law sometimes does deem certain people righteous. He does say that they are right, that they have righteousness. And the best way to think about this as we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament is like a courtroom. Because when we're talking about the God of law, we're talking about God being perfectly right and good and beautiful as the judge. And then the picture is of us people like us coming into the courtroom and him judging all of our lives against this right, good, and beautiful standard of his own nature. And obviously, if you're tracking in that picture, the verdict from this perfect, lawful God every single time should be unrighteous. It should be, you do not have righteousness. You're not in line totally with all that's right, good, and beautiful. And that usually is the verdict. But yet again, for some people, even in the Old Testament, God's verdict on some sinners who are not right in themselves is said to be, you are righteous. So how can that be? Leads us to our second point. So I know it's a lot, but now I hope you see that this idea of righteousness isn't some religious word. Instead, we're talking about God in the universe and how we all know that there's right and wrong in this universe and how that's rooted in God's nature and specifically concerning us. We know that this is our biggest problem. We all feel it. We're not right. But then, like we said, some sinful people are said to be right righteous in God's courtroom. So how can that happen? Which is our second main question of the morning. So some people will be deemed righteous. And so the question is, how have people usually tried to then get this righteousness? How have people usually tried to get this right verdict? Here's where we'll go back again to Philippians 3.9. We covered this last week, so we won't spend as long on it. But with that background in mind... Now notice how Paul helpfully summarizes the main way that people have tried to get this righteousness back. Look at Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so now you can see the main way people have tried to get this rightness back. We think naturally it's, quote, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And this really is profound. 
Because this is exactly what almost always happens. Because remember everything we're talking about. There's a right way in this universe rooted in God's nature. And we know that we are not totally right. But amazingly, we may feel, well, God might be gracious and he might count some people right and righteous. And so the question we all ask is, well, how can I make sure that happens to me? Right? How can I make sure that I'm okay? How can I be right again? And the answer most people give is, well, I'll do good. I'll try to do the most right and good that I can. Sure, I won't do it perfectly, but I'll do my best. And then when I stand before God in his courtroom, I'll say, God, of course I don't have your perfect righteousness, but look, I've tried to do all these right things, these good things, these beautiful things, and I haven't done these other really bad things. I've tried to make up my wrongs, and so please grant me the verdict of righteous. Give me righteousness. But notice again the Bible's point here in verse 9 is that is not the way that God in his courtroom grants righteousness. And in fact, as the Bible will say elsewhere, the reason that this isn't the way that God gives righteousness because, is because this would mean that God the judge would essentially then just be sweeping our sins under the rug. Because it would mean that God would be looking at the good things you've done and he'd say that they cancel out the bad. But that's not justice. That's not how it works. And we all know that. And just as a quick example, right? If somebody assaults someone and they come into a courtroom and they admit that they are guilty, totally guilty of the assault, them saying that they've done all this good stuff here and served their community and they haven't committed murder or stolen, that wouldn't erase their assault. It wouldn't. Justice doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that. It'd be wrong. Sin can't be erased by good. And yet, that's the answer to our second question of how usually people have tried to get this righteousness, to be right again. People try to earn it. They try to make up for their bad. And we need to see that, yes, this was true about the religious Jews in Paul's day that he's talking about, but it's also still the case for everyone today, religious or not. It really is. Because think about it. What is the main and really only way that people try to make up for this I'm not right feeling that we all have? What's the main and only way? Well, well mainly, apart from Christ, people just think I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to do a lot of good. Yeah, I mess up here and there, but look, I'm doing good here and I'm not doing bad there. And to be clear, it's not bad to try to do good, right, and beautiful things, but the point that our God makes for us, brothers and sisters, very clearly in the Christian gospel is that's not the way to make up for your wrongs. It can't work like that. In fact, to be very clear, God tells us that if you, before the face of God one day, try to put your goodness as the reason for why he should count you right or righteous, it will not work. It can't. Which brings us to our last question, and this is where we will see 
the gospel, the good news. So we've seen what righteousness is and how we're not right. And we've seen how people have usually tried to get this righteousness by doing good, but that won't work. But now our last question is, but how now does Jesus Christ relate to all that? And for this, we'll first look again at Philippians 3.9 one last time. But then we're going to go to three other places in the New Testament that get this picture filled out for us even more. So let's begin with Philippians 3.9 one last time. Look down at your Bibles. And be found in him, that's in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So remember, righteousness is what someone can have like in a courtroom when God says they're right. And again, Paul says here that he doesn't have that by his own doing. Instead, how does he have that? By faith in Christ. And so there it is. God has set up a way for you and I and anyone sinful and not right people to be genuinely deemed right. Righteous. To have righteousness in the courtroom. And how? By faith in Christ. And notice then for emphasis, Paul elaborates on this a bit more. He says to end verse 9, you can see it, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so this is the righteousness that we're looking for. The verdict of right that we're all seeking. And where is it coming from? It's the righteousness from God. And so we'll explain a bit more how this all works in other texts, but that's the main point of Philippians 3.9. And it's the gospel. In the judgment of the living, good God of law, the right, good, and beautiful triune God, there's a real God-endorsed, God-given way to have righteousness to be deemed righteous by him. Well, he will see you as right. And it's only through faith in Christ. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. Don't rely on yourself at all for coming back to God and being right again. Instead, rely on Jesus Christ. Trust him. And that's it. But now to understand how this all works especially concerning Jesus himself. Let's turn to a few more texts. We'll go to three more places in the New Testament quickly. And please, I encourage you to really follow along with us. And they'll each build in clarity as we go. Let's first go to Galatians 2.16. One verse, Galatians 2.16, if you want to turn in me, with me there, church. So this is Paul again. And he's talking about the same exact topic of righteousness that we saw in Philippians 3.9 in the Gospel. And he says this, Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, after reading that, you may be thinking... I don't see the idea of righteousness there. <laughs> and if you're thinking that, it makes sense because, as we all see, the word righteousness does not appear in English. But this is part of the reason I wanted us to go here together. Because here's where we need to make a point that is really so, so obvious if you're reading this in the original language or even other languages. 
but which in English, and I'll say in a second why, we literally cannot see it. And it's that verb that's translated justified there is the word righteousness made into a verb. Or think of it this way. The, the noun righteousness in English can't be made into a verb. We have no verb to righteousness someone. But in ancient Greek, which is the original language the Bible is written in here, they did have a verb for to righteousness someone. Just like our noun resurrection, right, is a noun can be made into a verb to resurrect someone, so the word righteousness here is made into a verb. But again, since we don't have an English verb to righteousness someone, instead we have to say to justify someone. But in the original language, it's the same exact root of the word. And I say all that because now you see that Galatians 2.16 literally has the word righteousness all over. Because literally verse 16 reads like this. We know that a person is not righteousness by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be righteousness by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because if by works of the law, no one will be righteousness. In other words, now you can see that this is literally the same idea of Philippians 3.9, but instead of the noun righteousness, primarily here Paul is talking about the verb being righteousness or being counted righteous by God. And that, by the way, is why the ESV, if you're reading it, has a helpful footnote on that first verb justified there. In verse 16, if you look down, they say it can also be translated as, quote, counted righteous. And that's great because that's exactly what it says. Paul's saying that people can be counted righteous in the courtroom of God. This is the good news. And how? Not by any works or doings of our own, but by faith in Christ Jesus. And this then is all that the Bible means by the famous phrase, quote, justification by faith. It's literally just being deemed right or righteousness by God in his courtroom by faith. But that then leads us to our final two passages of the morning. I know this is a lot, but I hope this is helpful. And here we will finally go a little bit deeper because a question you might have always asked, I hope this helps, is but how does this all work? Meaning, why is it that faith in Christ counts us righteous? Well, for this, first turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I really encourage you to go here if you can. It's just one verse, but it's packed with a lot of detail. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a little bit to the left in your Bible from Galatians. Paul says this. For our sake... He made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And like Philippians 3.9 this also is one of the best single verses on the gospel. Because if Philippians 3.9 tells us the importance of faith in Christ, here this verse tells us exactly what Jesus did. And what did he do? Well, see it for yourself. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. 
He hung up there suffering and was made sin as he, the good shepherd, died for the specific sins of his sheep. And as a result, what do we get? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And there it is. That's the gospel. Yes, that big word righteousness is used here, but now we get the point. Jesus takes our, our sin genuinely. Jesus suffers for the specific sins and sinfulness of his people. All so that in God's courtroom, we are now counted righteous. And why? How can that work for God? How can that be? How can God deem us right? Because we have no more sin or sinfulness on our rap sheet. It's all gone forever. Because really, Jesus suffered and paid for all of it. Which leads us to our last text. And this will be the most detailed text out of them all. And for this, turn with me to Romans 3, 21. Romans 3, 21. A little to the left, even further. Romans 3, 21. And we'll be looking quickly, specifically, at verses 21 through 25. And some theologians have called this, quote, the most important paragraph in the Bible. And I honestly would say that as well. Because here we get with crystal clarity how all this works. For the sake of time, we won't go into too much detail, but we will look briefly at it now. We'll go just a few verses at a time. But let's actually start with just the two verses before the paragraph of verses 19 and 20, because it sets the stage. So we're going to read just 19 and 20 to start. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, righteousness in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we won't go deep into that because we get the point. We're all not right. We're accountable to God and our obedience can't make up for it. That leads us to the most important paragraph. Let's begin by reading verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So we're all not right, verses 19 and 20, but there's a righteousness. There's a way of being counted right that God has revealed to us. And notice, it's not by obeying the law, although the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, do talk about it. So what is this righteousness? How do we have this right verdict? The beginning of verse 22, look down. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there it is. It's the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But now Paul's going to get even more specific on all of this, how all this works. So again, the question is, but why does trusting in Jesus count me as righteous? How do, what does it have to do with righteousness? Well, now let's read the middle of verse 22 through the middle of verse 25. For all have sinned, or for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, righteousness, by his grace as a gift 
Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'll stop there. And so if we had more time, it'd be great to go phrase by phrase through that. And I hope one day we do, because it's so beautiful. But notice, how does this righteousnessing of unrighteous people happen? Notice the Bible's logic. First, verse 23, we know this. We all fall short. But verse 24, we can be justified, counted righteous by God's grace as a gift. And how can God do this? Verse 24, the end, because of Jesus' redemption. Because Jesus delivered us by paying the cost of those sins. And finally and specifically, church, what really happened on the cross? Look down to your Bibles, verse 25. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. Which just means Jesus took the right wrath of God because he took our sins on himself. He took on himself all the ways that his people were not right. All his ways that we've hurt others. All the ways that we've dishonored and disregarded God. He paid for each and every one of those sins for his people. And because of that, because he took all that is not right in us, we are now declared right. Righteous. Justified. Not guilty. And all we do, verse 25, is receive this by faith. So church, that's the gospel. Call it whatever you want. The gospel of righteousness, if you like that word for some reason. The gospel of justification by faith, as the reformers love to call it. Or simply the gospel of how we're not right, but now because of Jesus we can be counted right. But whatever terminology we decide to use, more importantly is we must know that this is reality we're talking about. Because this really is the problem in the universe and everyone in it. Since Christians and non-Christians, everyone knows that this not being right is true of each and every one of us. And so we all agree on the problem, but the gospel is that this is the solution. It is the from God solution. And this then is the gospel. The gospel is that the solution to all that you know that isn't right in you isn't to try to make up for it. The solution instead is the historical work of Jesus Christ. It's the cross and resurrection. It's true forgiveness of each and every one of your sins and it's thereby being counted righteous by God, all by grace. Not because of anything you do, but because of faith in Jesus. But now as we come to a close, let me just share with you two final applications on all this. I know it's a lot, but just two applications. And they're both honestly pretty big applications. And they both, I believe, have a real potential to change our living and even our dying. And that's the first application. It's this. Church, we need to really embrace that this alone is the gospel. This alone. And what I mean by that is there can be no adding to this gospel. And I say that because we need to be really careful here. Because of how we talk about the gospel and explain the gospel really matters. Because so often we'll kind of knee-jerk want to say, yes, the gospel is all that, but... And then we can go on and subtly add to the gospel... 
We can add to the gospel that, yeah, Jesus died, but we must live accordingly. Or say something like that. But hear me out. The good news, what happened, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people, rose again, and now those who trust in him are deemed right. Their righteousness with God forevermore, full stop. And this means that the Christian gospel, in its essential message of the news, technically has nothing, nothing to do with your and my living. Nothing. And we need to know this for Jesus' glory and our own good because the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of his work and it's all grace. It's all a gift. And so in the gospel, the news, we do nothing. We just receive as a gift what's been done, full stop. Now, it is true that if we really trust Jesus and believe this gospel, the Bible is clear. It will impact our lives. Or to say it another way, the gospel, when really believed, does lead to certain results. But the application I'm making for all of us is not to mistake those results as having any basis in the good news itself. And in fact, this helps. This is why Paul, if you might know this, when he shares the gospel in Romans 3 through 5, he assumes in Romans 6 that people in response will say, well, if that's the good news then I'll go and and just keep sinning because it has nothing to do with my living because I'll just be forgiven. But really importantly, Paul doesn't respond to that by saying, well, no, your good living is kind of part of the gospel too. (laughs) He'd never say that. That's not the gospel. Instead, Paul decides to go and talk about a result of the gospel that once we were dead but now we're made alive. In other words, he says the gospel does lead to results, like being alive and new living, but the results aren't the gospel. The results are not part of the good news. And this means for us, just this is really important, it means that if you know someone or yourself are not acting in line with the Christian faith, it's not that you or someone else need to do more again to be right with God. That's not the gospel. Instead, the question is, have you or has that person really trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ? That's it. Because again, the gospel itself is clear. It's all Jesus and what he did and how we're counted righteous because of him. Yes, it will lead to certain results, but let's be clear. Our changed life isn't our good news. So leads to our second and final application. And it's this one that I hope will impact our living but especially our dying. And it's this. So this all being the case, that Jesus really took our sins once and forever, now we are counted right with God through him alone, this means amazingly that judgment day is now something that we as Christians can actually look forward to. I know that sounds surprising. Look forward to judgment? But the answer from the Bible is a resounding yes. Because have you ever noticed how positive God's people are about judgment in the Bible? 
This is true in the Psalms, sometimes in the prophets, where they really look forward to the day when God comes and judge. But it's especially true in the New Testament, where the church really wants Jesus to come back and judge. So how can this be the case? How can sinful people want God to come back and judge? Well, it's because of everything we saw this morning. Because this is all real. It's because if you think about it, this means for us Christians, judgment day will essentially just be a revelation to us and to the whole world that this gospel is true. Because then we'll basically be in God's courtroom and all of God's people, each and every one of us, will be shown to be sinners, absolutely. But also because of grace because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, that day will be a day where it will be shown that not right sinners like us are declared by God to be right. Not guilty. Righteous, because of Jesus Christ. So we can look forward to that day. It'll be a beautiful day, of course. We should pray for others who don't know Christ for that day, of course. But we can look forward to that day not because of us, not because we've done enough. Because I hope you're seeing that the question isn't, have I done enough? That's not the question now. That shouldn't be the question on your deathbed. It will not be the question at the judgment day because asking, have I done enough, is not the gospel. Instead, the only question is, do I trust this Jesus? Because if you do, then you are right with the God of the universe now and forever, and you will be right on judgment day, all because Jesus Christ, our substitute, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the friend who laid down his life for us, all because he took our very sins. He took all that isn't right in us. And so because of him, in him alone, we are now and forever, church, counted righteous. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.